Jack Dapper Blues Heritage Preservation Foundation is a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit private foundation. Your donations, sponsoring, and funding allows us to create content that raises awareness of African-American traditional music, African-American folklore, and the Black experience. Check the link in the description box to donate. If you wish to sponsor podcasts, documentary series, or underwrite ads in our newspaper, The African American Folklorist, contact the email address in the description box. vernacular and yada 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 as much as I love it we have something very special today now I know every time I do a podcast I say I have something special but this one is actually very special because not often does a academic or plural academics bring folklore history, documentation, as well as the culture of the people together to kind of give you a perspective of one of the most gruesome pieces of American history, of slave history, of world history that can actually be connected to the music. So I have a couple of great cats online with me today. I have 
Tyler Perry and Chaz Yingling. These are two groovy academics, both PhDs. Correct, gentlemen? Yeah, that's right. We got our PhDs together, actually. So, yeah. so this is going to be a very interesting conversation. I'm going to try not to veer right to see what was going on in those dorms. <laughs> but um, you guys have a very... And it's, you know, it's weird because I'm going to say unique, but in the big scheme of things, and I hope you understand what I'm saying, it's not unique, but it's a unique perspective because in my studies and research and interviewing, many, if not any, has ever really focused on this point and raised the case that you gentlemen has have raised. So let me just give them an introduction to the piece that you guys have uh, co-authored together that we could jump right into this. Slave, sure. slave hounds and abolition in the Americas. Okay? Now why this is so deep for the blues people, and I don't mean the actual blues people, but the, or, the fan of blues, the audience and enthusiast of blues, because they, they correlate slave hounds, hell hounds, bloodhounds with with the mystics of going to the crossroad and, and 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 selling your soul to the devil however there are those who correlated to what you gentlemen are talking about which is like in the piece i read a very poignant part of this story so let's jump right into this gentlemen uh first before we jump into this actually Tyler first, Chaz second. Give the audience uh, a, a summary of you and your works. Uh, yeah, so um, as noted, I got my PhD at the University of South Carolina, graduated there in 2014, and started on the, uh, the in academia immediately after. I was lucky enough to get, to get hired at the university. Um, I'm currently at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which if anybody listened to our last podcast, they... Uh, that became evident as to why that's so important and compelling. But, um, you know, I, I guess I'm a historian of what's called the Atlantic world, the African diaspora, but I have specific interests in slave cultures. And so my first work is uh, on jumping the broom as a folk custom of enslaved people. But um, when I met Chaz in graduate school and we became friends, we started looking at some commonalities in our own research in just different geographical areas. And so eventually we were able to collaborate and put our sources and minds together and produce this article on, on bloodhounds and the, the unique facets that they held uh, in the 19th, 18th, 17th centuries and beyond. So that's, that's a brief introduction to me. Jazz? Yeah, thank you. Um, I... Got, got my PhD in 2016. Tyler and I were there at the same time. Like you said, we uh, became friends really in 2011. Um, and my specialization is on slavery and race in the Atlantic. My kind of uh, specific interest is on the Haitian Revolution, which is the largest and most successful uh, slave revolution that ever occurred that founded the first black republic of Haiti. I'm interested in the play between that and the Spanish Caribbean, particularly what became the Dominican Republic. But kind of beyond that, I've written on uh, several other topics recently on things like race and space and cartography in places like Jamaica and Barbados. Uh, one of my first articles was on free black abolitionists in New York um, in 1820s through 
games. Um, and so like Tyler, I think we, we have this similarity of interest in terms of, of liking to bounce around. Um, so some of the archives that I've worked at are uh, appear in this article, like some of those in the United Kingdom and Spain, but I've worked also in the Vatican secret archives, uh, places as far away as Australia, parts of the United States, um, and so on. So uh, we actually started working on this article, and I think we, at least we started talking about it in October of 2012. Yeah. So. That was a while back, um, and to get something like this, especially especially with all the peculiarities of doing a co-authored piece, it's taken actually quite a long time to get this out. So, and we're happy with it. And thank you for having us on to talk about it. No problem. And I mean, you know, I read it. Uh, well, I read the first half of it with my youngest son. We were impressed. Um, uh, I, I want to say that the word you just used. Is, is the theme word for this conversation because anytime I read anything about um, the international slave trade or the domestic slave trade, that term peculiar is always utilized. And it's kind of ironic that you gentlemen uh, coin this as peculiar when the relationship in that space was peculiar as well as the relationship of these hounds because um. Tyler privileged me to a, a, a short synopsis of it in our last podcast, and I'm still a little mesmerized because I'm a big Marvel fan and conspiracy theorist. So just thinking about hybrid animals <laughs> is, 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 is really um, mind-blowing and, and also quite uh, scary. I want to start with the introduction of, of the particular piece you guys have on the academic site, right? It alludes to this particular uh, breed of dog originating during the uh, Second Maroon War. But as you read, you find that this was, by that time, a three-century-old um, um, war tactic. So, so before we start diving into all the other good pieces, how did you guys uh, make these connections from three centuries all the way down to the Maroon War to the, I guess you could say, the beginning of um, international slavery? I, I'll just go back to the conversation that I remember having in 2012. We were actually in the garage um, of my PhD advisor, who was on Tyler's PhD committee as well, Matt Childs. He was throwing a, a, a party for another scholar who had just published an, an award-winning book. Um, and we ended up talking for a long time that night, actually, about some things that we had just found in different archives. And I want to say that the, the sources that I had just found actually were about the Second Maroon War, and they were actually in archives in Spain. Um, and they, they were about how Spanish officials uh, sold slave dogs from Cuba to uh, British officials in Jamaica to put down or to attempt to put down the Second Maroon War in the 1790s. And Tyler found something similar uh, from sources in the United States. And I don't remember what those actually were. Tyler might be able to jump in and, and tell us. Yeah. Well, yeah, just really quickly. Um, so I think the genesis of how I was thinking about the project was I wrote my dissertation on slave marriages, which is the product of my first book. But one thing I had noticed is there was always an attempt by men specifically to 
go from plantation to plantation because most of them were married to what were called broadwives, which meant that the woman didn't live on the particular plantation. This was pretty common in the U.S. South. So this required them to sneak out I'm at sorry, night. Uh, you mean uh, slave men? Yeah, enslaved men. Yeah, okay, exactly. go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's fine, though. Good clarification. So essentially it required the men to be very cautious as to how they were attempting to visit these plantations that were sometimes 20 miles away. I mean, some, this was not an easy feat, and they had to walk there in the thick of the night in the rural south. So you can imagine how this, this would play out. And, of course, the worry was there were always patrollers on the road or men, white men of some sort who were— their entire profession was predicated upon capturing and then returning enslaved people who were um, considered truant. And one thing I had noticed, though, and this was just one of those interesting side notes that I was making in every uh, document I was reading, is they would talk about taking preparations to evade the bloodhounds. Mm. So one thing that becomes apparent if you're reading the voices of enslaved people or formerly enslaved people is that the 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 humans were not as much of a concern in that enslaved men were pretty confident they knew the terrain well enough to where they could escape from the human pursuers. It was the animals that came along that were of the most worry, specifically bloodhounds, simply because it didn't matter how far along you were or how much of a um, head start you had, the hound could scent you and you could always hear this baying of the bloodhounds in the background. And, the, and I kept noticing that they kept mentioning this. Hmm. And the one thing about writing about animals is that animals don't record their own history. So we have to actually take the words that the people are stating about the animals at face value and try to interpret them. And so the fact that these men and women in, in certain memoirs felt it necessary to mention dogs so often, I started to think that there must be something broader here. And so as Chaz was talking about the use of dogs in the Caribbean, it seemed pretty obvious to us immediately that there was a connection going on. Yeah, and then if I could just jump in and add, I think it was also remarkable once, it's like one of these topics that uh, the source material was kind of ubiquitous. There was evidence of this kind of all over the place. Nobody had put it all together. So one thing that we ended up doing, because we were both doing our dissertation research, was that every time we went to an archive to work on our own dissertation projects, which are now going to be our first books, respectively, independently of each other, uh, we were able to do a deep dive through the sources to try to find voices of the enslaved and uh, kind of evidence of how these um, extractive systems of slavery worked to try to find the dogs there. And so that's why we... If you look at the footnotes of the article, they come from all over the world. Um, that's one of the reasons why. And what's also interesting about the, about the idea of the baying of the bloodhounds that the slaves themselves talked about, oftentimes in our historical memory of slavery uh, in, in the United States, but also kind of more broadly, we, we are aware of things like the whip or sometimes the shackle and chains as being kind of the... Um, uh, the symbols of physical degradation associated with slavery. What's interesting is when you listen to the slaves themselves and also the abolitionists who tried to circulate to a broader audience the kinds of horrors that the slaves experienced, dogs were oftentimes front and center as being the kind of most egregious, brutal, and intimidating tool of white power. Uh, rather than the, rather than those other implements that are oftentimes more associated with it. And so, yeah, throughout the Caribbean, throughout the United States South, these, these institutions thrived on the, uh, the use of dogs or the abuse and misuse of dogs, really, um, 
by humans against other humans, right? And that's a story that then extends far beyond just the United States. Also, it, something that I really enjoyed learning about and also writing about was the extension of this process into places like Canada and Mexico. Uh, we also have a little bit in there about Brazil that we couldn't even really develop that much. So what's interesting is this wasn't just something um, that was that was briefly uh, bookended chronologically. It actually expanded across, like you like you mentioned, uh, the majority of the early history of the Americas after European colonization, and it, it extended to most um, nearby countries across the rest of the hemisphere. Well, I, I just have to say, Chaz just answered four of my next questions. The interview's over. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask them anyway. We can go into more detail. Sorry. No, but you know. <laughs> It is, it's ironic, and, and that, that is one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about, and one of the things that struck me, because, you know, the first time I was able to take my, my kids to the Schomburg uh, several years ago, uh, before they moved it, because now it's in a different exhibit. <clears throat> At the time, when they were, I mean, they're still young, but they were much smaller, and we walked in, the very first thing you saw was this glass table, and it highlighted the shackle. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the half has never been told. And they speak. He well, the gentleman speaks highly, not highly, but he speaks often is a better term of 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 the 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 Koffel gang. And again, we were speaking about these these chains of anything outside of the chains, uh, the Georgia men. Right. And, And you guys are saying, but wait, though, these are the symbols there's dogs, and when they speak about the Kaufel, um gang and the Georgia men, dogs are mentioned. Oh, yeah, very often. And, I mean, at Baptist, the half has never been told. I mean, I think we both know him professionally, and I think, I think we consider him a friend to some degree. And we, we use that book. This is actually an important invention in a thing called um, Second Slavery Studies, which Correct. is essentially this notion that as slavery is ending in certain areas of the British Empire, even or in the early 19th century, there's kind of this second phase of expansion in which Brazil, Cuba, and the U.S. start to assert themselves as very economically powerful slave societies in the Atlantic world. And so Baptist is using kind of this expansion of cotton production to discuss the degradations that come with the expansion of second slavery. And, you know, one thing we had noticed is that there's maybe two ways to approach this. On the one hand, as Chaz noted, dogs are ubiquitous in the sources. They're, they're everywhere. And it became really apparent that there's, we were originally just going to write an article, like this article was supposed to be it, but we kept finding so much stuff that we decided to take it to a, a different level and, and eventually produce a book, which we're currently uh, writing at this moment. And, but at the same time, when you look at a lot of studies about slavery, you have some incredible archival work and some incredible analyses, but dogs are kind of conspicuously absent in a lot of the secondary literature. And I think it's because animal studies is still a relatively new theme within historical writing. And so we're making an attempt to kind of synthesize a number of different historiographies simultaneously while producing a lot of this very unique archival and published primary source material that we have at this moment. Well, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, I was just going to add to that, if I could just for a second, and say um, I think we also embrace a movement in uh, history that's this kind of Atlantic turn, uh, which is to look beyond, if you could just put some values to it. One of the values would be to look beyond the, the bounds of nation states or colonies or empires and try to find commonalities across uh, languages or sometimes cultural boundaries that sometimes confine um works of scholarship to say that this was something that occurred like the Georgia man you talked about. There were also uh, slave packs uh, or sorry, slave tracking packs of dogs that work like this in similar ways in Cuba, uh, Hispaniola and so on. Uh, so that's one of the other kind of, kind of interventions that we wanted to make in this project. And sorry, I cut you off before you're about to ask a question. No, that's OK, because you, you actually bring me to another question that I wanted to ask, which um, I think is a good time for us to actually dive into this. Um, these particular dogs, right? Because now you have to say, especially based on and, and, and audience, I really, if the uh, link is still available, I will put up the um, was it the forty page um, excerpt from the the book because you guys have to read this, and it how is really the question. Okay, we can get to why later. How. If you guys were able to find this out, were they able to train and breed dogs that can only detect and attack a specific hue of human being, right? Because even in the census, there are people who are classified as white, but they're of color. So how are these dogs trained for this purpose? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in and just say um, early in the article uh, for anybody who chooses to read it, we, we hope you do. First of all, I'll say about that. Our institutions were very generous in offering uh, financial support to make this article publicly available. Typically, that doesn't happen for a journal like this, which is a, is a top journal in the, in the discipline of history. You'd have to have a subscription to, to get access. And so thanks both to University of Louisville and to UNLV for giving us money to do that because I think this has helped to get it to a much wider audience uh, and maybe some of the listeners as well. Um, but I'll say that in, early in the article, one of the people we cite is actually Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson was convinced that, um, among others, he wasn't alone, that uh, people of African descent looked and not only looked but smelled different than uh, European people and that's an extremely racist description uh, from that time period but operating on that kind of assumption on that kind of logic um, was the idea that that's that dogs could actually learn about that difference um, and then enact that difference basically as a legal category distinguishing white power from the the enslaved people um, and it, that kind of manifested in different ways sometimes it was more of a scientifically tinged racism um, and and to speak to the idea particularly about how that maps onto dogs biologies Dogs don't see the full range of spectrum that, that humans do. Um, however, they do see fairly acutely in a gray scale. And so we can't get into the amount of um, specificity about how dogs actually perceive it because we, we don't know. They didn't leave sources for us. But based on what we do know about uh, dogs' biology and about what um, humans who handled them thought, um, at least in a cultural practice and kind of an, an economically extractive practice, dogs did work in that way to some degree. They've also, they were kind of a, a form of confirmation bias as well, uh, that race was somehow an immutable fact. And I know Tyler has something to add to that, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, particularly by the 19th century, you're talking about 
a moment in tandem with the rise of scientific racism. So even if there is no evidence that dogs can sense race as a biological reality, which most people reject at this point, it's more of a social construct, the, the intention amongst a number of people who are producing these tracks or who were training these dogs was to convince people that dogs could in fact sense race, which mm. actualized racial differences mm. and racist practices throughout, throughout not just the United States, but the Atlantic, I mean, the Western Hemisphere in general. But the, the one thing we know is that the, the idea was to produce a dog that was, uh, for lack of a better description, genetically anti-black. And this is what they believed they had produced in the Cuban bloodhound initially. And the But when you look at the training techniques, it becomes obvious as to why the dog may have been prone to attack black people through the social conditioning that it had received. So th the basic elements that we can find that came from Cuba were that the dog was taken from puppyhood and essentially staked to the ground and starved for a period of months up to a year. And it was specifically starved or the a black man was forced to starve the dog mm. so that every day the dog saw a particular black man, usually an enslaved person who withheld food from it and then beat the dog vigorously and consistently every day of the week. So and, and there's even a, a statement that one formerly enslaved person makes is that they became enemies with each other. It was like implacable enemies that the dog couldn't help but hate people of African descent. And so the Cuban process was exceptionally brutal. And then the dog eventually was unstaked from the ground and then forced to chase the man. And that was how it was trained. And if the dog could actively catch him and brutalize him once he caught up to him, the dog was considered ready to be sold on the market. And from what we can tell, this training technique transfers over to the U.S. South, um, though it's not as clear as to how brutalized the dog was. But one thing that becomes very clear in the memoirs of the formerly enslaved is that they witnessed the reality that the dogs would leave white people alone. But at the moment a black man stepped on foot the plantation, especially when the dog didn't recognize, it would go crazy and try to attack that person. And so what we're working with are vivid descriptions of people who experienced the entire process and did come to believe that white slave owners through certain techniques had actually developed a dog that was anti-black. Wow, you know, and that also reminds me of the um, introduction where you give a uh, example right. of 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 um, a writer witnessing this in his room on, on more than one occasion. Yeah, and, and I mean that that source is particularly interesting. We were both we both looked at it when we went to the uh, the National Archives in Scotland because that source is also a journal entry. So he's writing for himself. I mean he's not as far as I know, didn't intend on publishing his thoughts, but he's a person that was from Scotland, was visiting Jamaica for a period of months, just surveying the island's sugar plantations. And a lot of his writing in the remainder of the journal is basically medicinal stuff. Like he's talking about how enslaved people dealt with things like chiggers um, in the ground and things. But he has this really bizarre uh, tangent in the journal in which he talks about 
you know, this peculiar dog that just has this inclination to attack specifically men of African descent. And he has a hard time explaining it, except for the notion that he knows this dog was a descendant of the dogs used against the Jamaican Maroons in the Second Maroon War. And so he comes around to believe that this dog, through its descendancy, has just this natural inclination to brutalize men of African descent. Yeah, I, you know, that's not a far-fetched theory, especially if if we've heard and read that there, there's this mind frame of a enslaved, of, of the enslaved that's been passed down generations through the actual human, right, of how to maneuver or act in certain situations where you don't necessarily have to train the person, it's just in their DNA. I, I have a question because you did mention in the piece, African descent, native descent. And so now when, when we get to the Americas, well, even in the Caribbean, right, were the dogs trained for those of African descent as well as those of native descent? Because I'm a big reader of the slave narratives, right? And I read, you know, the first time when I read it, it struck me odd, but I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't think too much of it. I just put it inside of my mind but as of now different things are coming up that I'm starting to really dig into this right so there's a couple of people in the slave narrative this one gentleman I believe it's Uncle Cinto Cinto uh, I believe um, he made a clear distinction between himself quote unquote black Americans and Africans right and there's a, a woman who was interviewed for the slave narrative that clearly said I am not African, I am not black, I am Indian. So now you have a native of the same hue as an African, right? At least this is what I'm receiving from these slave narratives, other things, but that's not what we're talking about, but from these slave narratives. How would the dog differentiate between the two? Or do you understand what I mean? Or is the dog just looking for, for someone, I, I wanna say of a dark hue, or brown hue, but you already explained that they have like a gray scale. So is is there because I'm, I'm from what I read in the article, this was also used not just for the descendants of Africans, but it was also used to remove natives off of their land. So how how was that process? Yeah, if I could jump in and just I'll, I'll try to answer the, the, the short, long and short of that answer might be that we just don't know, unfortunately, because. Um, you're, you're absolutely correct that early on in the Spanish colonization of the Caribbean, what, one of these remarkable um, trajectories is that dogs were front and center in uh, Spanish violence against indigenous populations and clearing them off the land. Once the Spanish succeeded at clearing indigenous populations off the land in places like Cuba, Jamaica, uh, Hispaniola, they they then eventually uh, instituted uh, African slavery in those same physical spaces, and then maintained uh, the enslavement of African descended people with the same the same dogs, basically oftentimes the same breeds. Um, however, how they train them at that time is something that either we haven't come across yet, or there's not a lot written about it. Uh, I don't think Tyler, do you have any idea about that? Well, I mean, uh, the, the way that we understand the the spreading of the indigenous population, way to kind of move them off the land, was that the Spanish were just using dogs kind of ritualistically, brutally, in a ritualistically brutal fashion. And that when you look at some of the earliest criticisms of Spanish colonization written by priests, they 
they mention this use of dogs and this form of ritualized violence as a way to criticize what the conquistadors were doing. And so the way that we can interpret at this point is that during the colonization process, it doesn't appear that the dogs were specifically trained to attack indigenous people solely. The dogs could attack anybody. That was just a product of war. But the way in which they executed indigenous people was very much... Uh, measured to be a statement against further resistance. And, you know, even in, I think it was um, a part of Mexico, they actually called these things a dogging. And it was specifically referencing what was done to indigenous people who decided to rebel against the Spanish. So it's, but what happens is that once these areas are filled with people of African descent and the dogs are not used to spread out or, you know, exterminate the populations, but they're used to contain them is when you start to see very specialized training techniques predicated upon returning or sometimes, you know, killing a fugitive who just who tried to abscond from the plantation. Yeah. And just to add to that, if you're interested in for anybody uh, interested in narratives like you're talking about slave narratives, there's. Some really interesting narratives on the early colonization of the Americas written by Bartolomé de las Casas, who was one of these major critics of how Spaniards, the Spanish treated indigenous populations. And there are many other examples than the one that we included in the article about how dogs were used to exterminate indigenous peoples. What's interesting about that as well is by the time that other empires were competing in the Caribbean and the, and the rest of the Americas, like, for example, when the English took Jamaica, um, there, there became an idea that the Spanish were somehow specifically or uniquely barbaric by having used dogs. But what's interesting is, as, as our evidence, I think, shows, pretty much as soon as every other empire arrived, the, the, the English and later British and then the French, uh, the Dutch even did this, they actually adopted the same kinds of tactics of, of using dogs against um, forced labor. Um, so it wasn't something that was just unique to Spain. Everybody embraced it eventually. Right. Okay. So I just want to be clear. I, I'm not asking you hard questions to throw you off. I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> no, because you know the the. I think for me, the the biggest wow moment is the fact that these the the use and training of these dogs really established boundaries that were that's still uh in effect and we can get to that later because the dog was a premier image of civil rights right so you know that's why i'm asking you these questions not i'm not trying to throw you guys off but i i, I do <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it's good this is good for us good yeah. um but this is a great segue because you speak about abolitionists right and how they wrote on the horror the same way that was written about the spanish use of it uh before you guys delve into that there's something I want to ask specifically based on the piece. Uh, it says, ironically, abolitionists utilized the very evidence that acquitted dogs among the plantocracy. Please explain that in layman's terms for the audience as well as myself. <laughs> sure, yeah. I'll jump in if you don't mind. I, I think what we really are trying to get at with that line is to say that for example, dogs were used to kill the indigenous population in many instances. That endeared them. That kind of proved their effectiveness and utility to the subsequent generations of slave owners 
in, in the same kind of islands in the Caribbean. Eventually, like, for example, the Second Maroon War of Jamaica that occurred in the 1790s, eventually those kinds of rumors and stories were circulated across the rest of the Americas, including into places like the United States South. So that when similar types of unrest occurred in the United States South, there was already kind of a precedent upon which uh, United States officials, or oftentimes mostly just slave owners um, and, and trainers of the PACs, could draw upon those kind of preceding models to use and borrow to use in places like the United States South. So what, what that line means is basically that the same evidence that made dogs impressive and useful to white power was also the same evidence that abolitionists used to show how horrible and depraved and violent white power and slavery actually were. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense because ultimately you, you, you're saying they, they were raising the case, but it was saying to those who utilized it, this is what we need to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if I could just jump in, because you, you mentioned the civil rights movement. So just to connect the two eras here, Absolutely. And the, um, the kind of the eminence of dogs in the, in the entire spectrum of it. So uh, as Chaz noted, Dogs, as this method of social control, racialized social control, eventually become a kind of a premier figure for calling for an end of the institution because people with certain sensibilities thought it was just brutality or extremely brutal to dehumanize people below animals. And so it is really this evocation of the bloodhound and the brutality and the capacity for them to kill um, fugitive slaves that does start to garner some sympathies among the abolitionist movement and, and others, particularly as formerly enslaved people are producing memoirs about their experiences and how they um, use the dogs as kind of this symbol of the fear that they had when they were running through the southern periphery. Now, if you look at that through the perspective of the civil rights movement, you know, Jim Crow lasted for multiple generations. White Americans didn't really start caring about the civil rights movement or at least ending it until the dogs of Birmingham pictures were plastered all over these national periodicals. Mm. So once again, when you call for like the end of racial apartheid, you, the dogs are factoring in as an image that is supposed to evoke um, both sympathy amongst um, indifferent white Americans, but also the sheer horror that these types of tactics are being employed. But for African-Americans, this was old news. I mean, the idea of dogs being used as a form of racist terror was well known by that point, but it wasn't until the images were circulated first in the abolitionist movement and then later in the civil rights movement is when you start to see people garner a sympathy for the cause of protesters. And if I could, if I could just add to that a little bit, I, I think our hope is for the book um, to build also on other cases of kind of liberatory struggle, um, including things like decolonization in Africa um, and the end of the imperial era, because there were similar instances, like you mentioned, Tyler just said apartheid, and it just triggered in my mind the idea that um, dogs were used to attack uh, protesters in South Africa Absolutely. against apartheid. Dogs were used in places like the Belgian Congo. So there, there will be elements of that. Uh, uh, which are not exactly um, um, identical cases, but in certain ways, those cases do rhyme, just like the kind of rhyming that you see in these cases across the Atlantic in, this, in these slave societies, right? Uh, and so our hope is to integrate a perspective, kind of a, a, keep that kind of broader Atlantic perspective throughout that uh, conversation about what happened in the 20th century. 
So with that being said, um, and, and based on the, the evidence you guys present and, and how it, it, it plays out, not just in the actual piece, but in real life to this day, is, is this somewhat... Okay, this is a better way of asking the question. Do you do you believe or would you consider the fact that the, the origins of this kind of helped put into action how law enforcement utilizes dogs to keep people at bay? Because we see the same images in protests. We, we could think of Missouri and Baltimore. Do you see any connections in, in, in that? Yeah, so I get this question uh, quite a bit nowadays. And you know, I've been fortunate to study the 20th century documents to kind of validate suspicions that people have. So one thing I can tell you is that after the Civil War ends and after Reconstruction ends, and we get into this period where there's an inception of Jim Crow and a rise in convict leasing and a rise in incarceration of black men throughout the U.S. South. You actually do find newspaper reports of training exhibitions in which dogs are trained to hunt black men through uh, the southern forests. Or you have uh, people talking about sharecroppers who try to escape from the plantation, and they specifically say they are hunted down uh, by bloodhounds in the old slavery days fashion. And so there's this direct link that observers are making saying that the modern hunting of black men or the contemporary hunting of black men is a direct replication of what was happening under slavery. Now, as we get into the canine units of the 20th century, specifically the development of the urban canine units in the 50s and in the 60s, which produces uh, the dogs of Birmingham, you do have a very deliberate and targeted use of such dogs against protesters of African descent, so African-American protesters. Now, the degree to which a modern dog trainer utilizes training techniques specifically geared toward black people, I think that's very difficult to find and would be very hard to prove. I mean, most most training videos you see is typically just an officer training the dog to attack their padded arm, and that and if the dog's considered um, good enough to do it, they can take them down. But one thing that becomes apparent, and, and you mentioned Ferguson, and you can also mention Los Angeles as well, so it's even in what we might call liberal areas of the United States. Dogs have been disproportionately used against people of African descent, specifically black men. And even in the 1960s, as the canine unit is becoming more prominent, black communities would write to the police forces and they would basically say that the dogs are overrepresented in their neighborhoods or that these dogs are there for no reason. They're just patrolling for no reason, even though a crime is not being committed. And the typical response that you would get from the police department is, oh, well, they're just sent there because of the crime rates in specific areas. So they would deny this idea of racial specificity, despite the fact that it's been proven by a number of internal reports that the bite ratios of black and brown men are overrepresented when compared to white people that are bitten by canines. Well, so, okay, there's a couple of things that I I want to unpack here based on uh, you gentlemen's statements and the piece, right? First, so it's a two-part question, and I'm just going to let y'all go and answer. Uh, first, uh, you, you, you really specified from the beginning, from the time we started, black men, right? So women were not being targeted. Were they ever targeted or their um, 
demise or untimely demise came at the hand of the white woman of the plantation? That's one question. And the second question, based on your last answer, as well as what I read, how much of a psychological impact has this had on the following generations? And do you believe that was part of the initial plan? I'll jump in real quick and say, just to the last question you asked me before these two, if you're interested in some of these more contemporary issues, we Tyler and I also wrote an article in Jacobin about three years ago called Canine Terror. And if anybody's interested, they could Google that, and it's also um, free. I would say to some degree, the issue about women, um, women were also attacked as well for running away. Um, I think part of the answer to that also goes to demographics and who was most likely to run away. Um, and to some degree, uh, depending on the time and place, there was actually a greater number of enslaved men. Um, that was less the case, I guess, in the U.S. South as in parts of the Caribbean. Um, and that also, to some degree, it seems that at times, uh, men might have been more likely to run away. Uh, so for those reasons, that may have been why uh, there's a, an overrepresentation. Um, but in many of the cases that we have, that at least we'll be able to include in the book, that uh, women are also involved um, quite a lot. And then to the psychological issue, one, one common reflection frame that came up quite a lot in the sources that we consulted was that people were treated worse than a dog. So not only were people treated like prey uh, being hunted uh, with these uh, dogs through whatever environment they were trying to escape through, but they were actually treated on plantations oftentimes with more contempt than the dogs treated. Dogs sometimes were fed better, sometimes dogs were housed better, and then those same dogs were used to basically enforce their labor. So they were being, humans were being treated worse than what oftentimes humans would consider to be a subservient uh, species. And so that, that alone, aside from all the actual horrible violence that occurred, was an additional element of psychological um, uh, torture, you could say. Yeah, and, and just to build on, on both of those uh, answers, um, and we know that Harriet Jacobs, um, who wrote one of the few memoirs of a woman who actually ran away from Virginia Plantation, she does mention bloodhounds and, and her fear of them within um, her own memoir, though her her escape was a, a bit different than most in that she confined herself for a number of years instead of just directly running away. But also there are statements attributed to Harriet Tubman in which she discussed bloodhounds in kind of a verse form. So any any woman that ran away and left some type of record, there certainly was a fear of the bloodhounds and a tactic used to evade them. One thing I've recently found in the research is I'm writing about uh, resistance to the bloodhounds in a chapter that we're writing in the book, is that there's at least a few enslaved men who talk about I guess, boarding with certain enslaved women who were trying to help them as they were escaping north. And a few of them actually discuss that they acquired their knowledge of how to evade the bloodhounds from these particular women. Mm. So even if the women weren't running away, they were either attributing knowledge to their community or gaining knowledge from their community about how to evade the bloodhounds, noting that that was a particular uh, problem or at least a point of concern for anybody who was thinking about trying to escape um, the plantation at that time. Um, and another thing that I would just say about kind of generational memory and, and trauma associated 
associated with dogs is that when we talk about slave narratives broadly conceived, we're actually talking about a number of you know very different sources that were published in very different periods. So one thing one thing that you notice reading what are called the WPA narratives, most of those are recorded in the 1930s. Correct. Uh, people who are decades or generations removed from the actual experience of being enslaved, but within their memory it is embedded how important of a factor the dogs were used as a tool of fear and then of course with the continuation and perpetuation of the use of dogs and policing you have to imagine that there is a multi-generational impact specifically among people of african descent that a white person's dog you might want to distrust it at least initially um, that, that that was a source of fear and intimidation that was ubiquitous throughout the entire their entire existence in the United States. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, it is quite ingenious that you gentlemen have have embarked on this because as as I listen to what you guys are explaining, a lot of images of of different documentaries and, and books and pictures, there. There's a lot of images of dogs, but in a lot of blues songs that speak about dogs and, and being chased by dogs is just really, I, I don't want to say ironic, but I'm really happy that you guys have really taken the time to collect all this and, and kind of bring it together because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that you guys are trying, I don't want to say try, let me rephrase it, but one of the things you guys are bringing to the table is that these happenstance, happenstances weren't like sporadic uh, 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 things in different small pockets that were spread across, but it's almost like the whole. Is, is this what we're talking about? Yeah, I, I think I'll just, since considering your audience, I'll say that a lot of times when I write, I really like listening to Lead Belly and uh, Charlie Patton, uh, some of the old classics, Robert Johnson, speaking of the crossroads, since you brought that up at the beginning. But yeah, it, I think we even cited um, Lead Belly at some point in the article um, in the song Old Riley. Um, but there are many, like you just said, and we, we, we'd love to hear more of your uh, suggestions about songs that we should include for the book, because uh, I'm actually a musician. Tyler used to be involved in music, too, believe it or not. Uh, both of us were. That was our a previous life, I think. Uh, but, yeah, that's an aspect that we would love to develop more for for the book project, uh, for sure. Well, yeah. And the thing I would, I would mention just to kind of build upon what you were saying is once once you discover the dogs, you see them everywhere. And so, you know, for instance, a colleague a couple of years ago, he works on, he's, an, he's a modern abolitionist, so he talks about abolishing prisons. And he, um, he sent me this interesting article about the use of dogs during cell extractions. Mm. And, and so, you know, dogs, they're, they're figuring everywhere within law enforcement in this capacity. And considering the disproportionate representation of black men in the carceral system, if you watch the movie 13th or the documentary 13th, there is this brief period where they show a cell extraction and there's this ferocious German shepherd mm. uh, forcing the man to lay on his on his stomach or I think I think it's on his stomach. And if he doesn't, the dog is going to attack. And so black men um, and women are facing kind of this these ravenous dogs even after the being detained by the police. And so these, these, it even happens in the cell extraction process as well. So it, it becomes very difficult if you're a skeptic to really separate the use of dogs from the development of race and racism. 
uh, throughout Atlantic history and in the modern modern era. Right, because it, it, it it's clearly a representation of, of of a power structure, who's at bay and who's in control. Let, let's, let me ask you this question, but I was holding off to get through what we just spoke about. Um, you mentioned, uh, I believe it was, yes, it was mentioned in, in the article, but you also just mentioned in the podcast that a lot of women were, were giving... Uh, instructions or suggestions how to avoid. So what were some of the tactics to either get away or camouflage their scent or whatever the case may be? Well, um, since Tyler mentioned Harriet Tubman a minute ago, one of the things that she did, and this did not make it in the article, is that sometimes she would actually use animal noises to call to other runaways uh, during night uh, trips, Mm -hmm. including, I think, owl. She would make owl noises, um, which is pretty... Impressive. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of different strategies. We, we have, um, Tyler could talk, speak more to this about the herbal concoctions that runaways used in the U.S. South, but like people in, in Cuba sometimes would strip off naked and run through the woods. They'd throw their clothes up into trees uh, to, so that the dogs would scent the clothes and not their actual bodies. Mm. And like we were just talking about, we were just talking about um, um, blues music. Uh, wading in the water and uh, was actually a really fantastic strategy to to mask your scent as well. So, yeah, and and one thing we we should emphasize is Chaz mentioned Cuba. This is these techniques are multi generational. I mean, we're talking 1600s. You start to see some references to enslaved people's techniques of using swamps or you know rivers to mask their scent or to hide from the bloodhounds, hoping they would just go the other direction. So you find uh, certain tactics of invasion in Martinique and Jamaica and some of the early places. And also, I mean, the Maroons who rebelled. Uh, were using certain techniques. They even used their own dogs, I believe, to uh, alert them if the British soldiers were coming to try to quell the rebellion. So I guess the the easiest way to suggest is that there's a a few different areas uh, worth considering. The goal of any person who decided to run away was to not have to confront the dogs most of the time. Um, Now, there, there are a few cases I've recently found where in order to enact a certain amount of vengeance upon the dogs, there are some runaway men who actually come back to the plantation specifically to beat the dogs up, and then they <laughs> run away after that. And so it suggested there was maybe a personal vendetta they felt against these particular bloodhounds that had been trained to, um, to hurt or harm them and their families. But one thing you find is a lot of preparatory measures that were taking place. So there's at least one... A uh, story I found where the man and his partner s- rubbed their scent on a variety of trees throughout the forest before they ran away mm. because they were banking on the reality that the bloodhounds were going to follow whatever scent they found. So as they were running away, the bloodhounds were darting from tree to tree to tree to try to find them, whereas they were miles ahead by that point. And though that wasn't a guarantee that they would escape, it bought them a lot of time to plan their strategies. And so they would also use things like spruce pine. They would use turpentine, cayenne pepper, onions, anything that had a, a particularly strong scent. They would either rub their feet or their boots within it. One person actually uh, formed an entire perimeter 
of cayenne pepper around the area in which he was hiding so that if the bloodhounds approached, they would sneeze and it could alert him to the possibility that he needed to leave really quickly. So a lot of these evasive tactics, we have to understand that enslaved people were acting as scientists. They were knowledge producers who were then disseminating this information to fellow runaways who were seeking to do the same thing. Yeah, like, and that included people who like cover warfare themselves warfare in, in dirt. Um, yeah. and, but what's, what's also remarkable about that is that uh, oftentimes these, these communities that had these strategies were separated by significant space and time, like Tyler mentioned. And so it's really remarkable that they developed such ingenious tactics uh, without oftentimes, sometimes there was this intergenerational exchange, but sometimes like across islands in the Caribbean, uh, it, it seems that these people were coming up with strategies kind of independently of each other as well, which is fairly remarkable. Well, yeah. let, let me ask you something, um, somewhat, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but just based on what we're discussing and understanding the generational and psychological ramifications, we've come to find, you know, thinking about somebody, and I don't want to drag this brother through the mud, but I'm just going to mention him only because he's the most popular um, um, person that... Uh, pretty much was, I believe, arrested for this. But Michael Vick, mm. right? So you see a lot of rap videos and a lot of uh, brothers in, in, in rough areas utilizing pit bulls, rottweilers, and things of this nature, not only to fight, the, you know, the dogs, but to, to kind of scare off other black and brown people. What, what do you make of that? you know, utilizing the same tactics as the oppressor against your fellow man. What do you feel about that? Or do you even think about it? Well, I would say there has been some academic work produced about the the racial connotations of, of both Vic's dogfighting as well as the repercussions of his trial. And so one thing that becomes very apparent after the trial and after he's convicted is you know, there were there were these developments of like the Vic dog toy in which people would feed a you know rubber Michael Vic to their dog, and there are obviously racist uh, you know racist overtones to the entire practice. Though it was presented as just a colorblind way to enact revenge against Michael Vic by particular dogs, and so there's there's obvious racial connotations within the entire process. The one thing that I would say, as you know, specialists of 19th century history is it wasn't uncommon for enslaved people to seek dominance over animals. Um, And this is particularly within respects to their position upon the plantation. And I think one thing to understand is that people were seeking some element of power or autonomy within their daily lives. And so there are reports from black people themselves sometimes, and they talk about how they treated particular animals. And so what Michael Vick did took it, I think, to an entirely different level as far as the way the dogs were being treated and trained for the process. But there is at least some documented tradition of fighting animals throughout the South. And so there's certainly some connection to black men participating in dog fights, but it's also, I think, you know, Vic's identity as a Southerner in which animal fighting was not an uncommon thing in the early 20th century, though it seems to have carried over in certain respects into the urban areas. Uh, no, I dig you know, I actually uh, uh, agree on that. So what, what, as we wrap up, what I would like 
to ask two gentlemen what you pretty much have shared throughout the entire uh, interview, but I want to ask you guys this specifically. What would you like and what do you want your readers to receive from this piece and the entire project? Well, I think it's so I think it's one way to educate people upon the sheer magnitude of the brutality of, of slavery and its legacy. So, I mean, to be very honest here, one of the re, one of the motivations we had for writing that initial Jacobin piece is that I gave a public presentation at a small library at the local institution I was at and a conservative publication caught wind of it and basically um, took took the piece and misrepresented me. Mm. And so because they thought it was ridiculous that somebody was saying dogs are racist, which I didn't actually say, I just said they've been used for racist purposes. But basically the motivation was, okay, I need to correct the record here because if animals are also part of this particular process, it shows the degree to which people were willing to go in order to subjugate a population solely based upon racial identifications. And by harnessing the power of the dog, it also meant you now had this non-human that if unrestrained, could enact significant brutality against a fellow human being. And so it suggests that, as Chaz mentioned, there's this colloquialism that we sometimes might dismiss saying, you know, my master treated me worse than a dog. Mm. But this suggests that that phrase may have actually been literal for people that were using it, because this is something they were experiencing every single day of their existence. Yeah, and I would add to that that, uh, in trying to find a way to explain the creation of race as a social practice and a legal practice, which are the, the repercussions of which are absolutely still with us to the present day. And they resound still in pop culture and things like movies like White Dog, which is not exactly new, but it's from the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then movies like J- Django Unchained. I mean, mm-hmm. the dogs appeared in that as well. There's There are these resonances that still appear. But basically, that, that uh, the rise and fall of slavery in the Americas um, revolved around a particular type of dehumanization violence um, that made race kind of a, I'm using air quotes here, a real thing, but in terms of having real consequences of uh, painful life experiences, uh, it really did. And one of those enactors, maybe the most important enactor of white power uh, for a significant period of time were actually uh, canines. So I think it's an untold history. We, We hope it's an academic contribution, but we also hope more broadly by talking to you and by hopefully uh, having a wider readership, um, that is something that the broader public can benefit from as well. No, I dig it. I'm definitely going to link uh, this piece, and I would like to, um, if one of you gentlemen can send me the canine piece. I want to link both pieces, if you don't mind. But there's one thing I, I forgot to ask you guys, and Chaz, you actually mentioned it briefly, and I wanted uh, you gentlemen to expound on this, because in your piece, you mentioned that not only were humans... Uh, terrorized and human-on-human terrorized, but these animals were actually abused. You actually explained the piece of of the abuse of the dog. Now, um, could could you, as you go into that and expound on it, give us a uh, feel of, of, of why we should care about that for those who are like, well, that's just an animal. Well, just to bring it back, if I could, to the, to the instance that you just discussed about, uh, Michael Vick, for example, like um, we don't want people to take away that this is something that should be 
um, taken out against dogs today, for, for one thing. That's a major overarching point that maybe should be made or clarified. Um, and that dogs didn't ask to be put in this position in the first place. Um, they were cajoled. They were sometimes bribed or incentivized into participating. Um, they were also not, even if they were sometimes actually truly treated better than slaves, it doesn't mean that they were treated well. And it doesn't mean that this was something innate that was then passed down uh, on a generational basis. So um, I think it's extremely important because it's very difficult to get into the into the minds of the dogs themselves. Um, we haven't found a particularly great way to do that yet as historians uh, looking back to the past of a, of a multi-species past like this. Um, but I think it's incredibly important to mention that they didn't ask to be put in this role in the first place. Yeah, just to briefly add to that, it, it suggests that the system of slavery throughout the hemisphere, not just in the U.S. South, but pretty much everywhere in the, in the Atlantic, um, it was predicated upon exploitation of various things, both human and non-human. So dogs were exploited in various measures, uh, but specifically to preserve the system of slavery. But that doesn't, as Chaz mentioned, guarantee they were treated well. In fact, they were very significantly brutalized during this process, and they were expendable. I mean, this is why breeding dogs was such an important thing, because it was figured that you might lose one or two during a pursuit. And so it suggests that you know, even if the dog was fed relatively well and housed relatively well, there were no guarantees that its safety was of any concern to the, the slave hunters that utilized them. Right, which is, okay, so that's where I was trying to go. They, they were tortured. Their lives didn't matter just as much as the lives of those that they were tormenting, right? right. Because if, if they didn't um, uh, commit an atrocity against this particular human, I'm sure they were beaten or if not put to sleep. Sure. I mean, one thing that I've found is that the dogs were always the first line. Uh, they, were, they were always on the front line. So if you had an enslaved runaway who was um, with prowling around the forest or the periphery, you know, there, there, is, there are some writings that suggest that people were weary of runaway slaves because they knew the environment so well and they took such good defensive measures against the humans that hunted them. So they would usually just send the dogs first. And if the dog died, you could always replace it with another one. And so it does suggest that there, you know, at least one of the reasons the dogs were used is because humans you know, who hunted enslaved people were too cowardly to take care of it themselves. Usually the dogs were the ones that tackled the individual, the ones that lacerated their flesh, the ones that subdued them. And then the slave owner or the slave hunter came in with their gun and held them at gunpoint until they tied them up and took them back to the plantation. So the, the dogs were very much an expendable feature of this process, but it, that's what made them supremely important because they were so expendable and, but also so fiercely brutal at the same time. Yeah. And if I could just add into that, I think, uh, I think part of the, just based on some of the sources I've been looking at recently, uh, another thing that we'll include in the book is that these were, Dogs were on slave ships as well, crossing the Atlantic. So it wasn't just a land-based issue. They were also in slave castles, um, factories that held slaves on the coast of Africa. So I think the even the more that both of us look at this over the next little bit while we're building the book, I think we'll, we'll have even sharper answers to these very questions that you're asking. No, you have very sharp answers. Don't get it twisted. The answers have been great. No, I don't know. We, we like this. This is fun. <laughs> it's good, yeah. Good. Next time you guys put out another 40 pages, please, let's do it again or when the book is ready get it yeah 
hopefully more next time. Yeah, hopefully more. <laughs> Listen, whatever it is, get it to me because this is great and and it it really, you know, one of the the the, the major uh, roles for my platform is to bridge the gap between the layperson and the academic. And and what happens is the the blues people more than likely, you know have the same thoughts or have questions about certain things that are on a song and and, and, and they may uh, come up with their own uh, theory behind it or whatever, but this particular project you guys are working on really gives some really good um, assessments and, 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 and background to a lot of the songs that these men and women were singing from before the turn of the century, because you know, we all know by the time somebody sang something in 1920, chances are this was passed down for at least 60, 80 years. Yeah, you know. So I, I appreciate this. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's like we've said, you, you start to see and hear them everywhere. I mean, even Nina Simone talks about them. Um, exactly. I think it's in Mississippi, goddamn, uh, when she talks about bloodhounds on my back. And so, I mean, in in the the deep memory, particularly of Black Southerners. Um, it's just common knowledge that this was a reality and that it continued and perpetuated into their own daily lives as well. I think that's the best place to leave this. <laughs> Gentlemen. Well, you know what? It's, it, thank, thank you for having it. And it's, it's really good to be able to look up from the trenches after having worked on this for a few years and, and, and know that people are actually engaging it. So thank you as well for extending that platform for us. No problem, no doubt. This is what we're about. Again, when you guys are ready to talk some more, just reach out. And I didn't even mean to do that just now. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? That was like four rhymes right there. (laughs) I was impressed. I was keeping note. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure. Again, tell the good folk where they can find you on social social media so they can follow the journey of this project. I'll, I'll say I'm, I'm Chaz's social media agent. He's, uh, he's, he's one of the fortunate few to not have to rely on Twitter. But uh, if you want to find me, uh, I have a Twitter handle at P-R-O-F-T-D-P-A-R-R-Y at Prof T.D. Perry. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Jack Dapper Blues on Twitter, so you can find me. <laughs> Um, you know, and so Twitter is the easiest place to find me. Um, but also my email, my institutional affiliation, UNLV is publicly available for, through Google searching too. Yeah. And, and anybody's more than welcome to email me. I deleted social media about five years ago and I'm happy Smart with man. that decision, but yeah, email me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen.